On the occasion of Enoteca Seleno's 70th birthday, we spend a special double episode at the Melbourne Institution in an old pub in Carlton North. We talk with Rosemary and John Portelli, the custodians of this import, wholesale and retail business founded by Rosemary's father, Gino DeSanto, in 1953. This is episode two. Ah, I think all our suppliers are fantastic. They're all passionate. They're all really trying to do what they can for their product, whether it's a food or a wine or liqueur or whatever. We need small people to live and survive because they are the ones who are giving us the, the provenance, the experiences, the conversations, the reason for us to get out of our house. From the beginning, whether it's pasta or extra virgin olive oil, balsamic vinegar or jarred artichokes, gorgeous risotto rice or a beautiful Valpolicello wine, Enoteca Seleno honours the artisans who grow and make by carefully selecting, transporting and sharing tales of each product with their Australian customers. In the first episode, we heard from Rosemary about the origins of Enoteca Seleno and from John about joining the business. In this episode, we consider the importance of such institutions and why the business is still so vibrant and dynamic after 70 years. Rosemary picks up the tale. Who are her customers? What are the conversations they have? Where does the soul of Enoteca Sileno lie? Look, from Italians, it was, it was interesting because um, especially like 30, 40 years ago, it was more like, oh, well, that's so expensive. I'm not going to pay for that. You know, I can make that whatever it was at home. Um, and then some people would import like um, their liqueurs, um, the centerbe, which is a very typical um, um, spirit from, from Abruzzo region made of over 100 herbs, um, which is what centerbe means. Um, and then it was about 70% alcohol by volume. Um, and so some people would start bringing their own in. They'd go to Italy and bring in, and then customs would say, well, hold on, you've got to pay this duty and that and everything. And then um, people started realising why the prices were what they were. But um, it was more the Australians who travelled and the children of the immigrant Italians who um, would come over and trying to find their their heritage, their background. You know, they'd come in and, you know, my parents are from Calabria or Veneto. What have you got from the area? They wanted to learn more about their region, their sort of culinary background, which was really, uh, and they still do, which is really interesting. Yeah. We do have such good Italian product and it's not just pasta and pizza. I mean, we have good pasta. We don't do pizzas. But, you know, there's more to Italian cuisine than just pasta, pizza and, you know, frascati and that rubbish. Um, I think we've, over the years, we've been able to um, help Australians understand that there's more to Italy than just pasta and pizza, that there's some beautiful, regional, unique product. Some years, I think it was about 10 years ago, um, John and I went to Italy with two friends. He cooks all the time at home um, and we went to Sicily and he he was on the <laughs> search for the best caponata with a um, 
capsicum and everything. Everywhere we went in Sicily, and we were there, I think, for 12 days, um, he would order a caponata. And everyone was different. Even if it was we were maybe five kilometres away from the previous town, everyone was completely different, delicious. And I think he came home more confused um, and hadn't found the ultimate caponata, but um, there you go. It's just, it's wonderful for not only Australians, for everyone here in Australia to see these beautiful dishes. And yeah, I think that's fantastic. We're very, very fortunate that my father-in-law set amazing foundation stones. And a lot of it also happened because of, it was chance. You know, he wanted, he couldn't find his coffee. So he would have his coffee on the migrant uh, the migrant ships and he befriended all the captains and have friends bringing, over, bringing things over for him. You could in those days in the ships. And, um, and he was you know, looked after very well by his mother and his grandparents, grandmother. And so all of a sudden, this young man pursuing a new, new life in Australia didn't have... Uh, the uh, energy of life, food that he longed for so much and he said, this is going to be my path. Probably never ever thought that was going to happen what happened but then I said to him he was really entrepreneurial. You know, he pioneered extra virgin olive oil into um, into Australia. We pioneered the balsamic vinegars. He brought in panettone in wooden boxes lined in zinc. Uh, he brought in the um, the cherries in the brandy. He brought in the Dicecco pasta when Di- when Dicecco was made in more of an artisan style. When they changed location, become a big, big plant and, and become can be 24-hour production, he felt that that was not what he was wanting. So in the late 70s, he already saw the the effects of supermarkets on small operators in America. And and, um, and so he decided then that he would, you know, be going towards a specialisation path. So effectively, in then three, four years after that, he pretty well got rid of almost all of the commercial lines, which would be commercial, industrial, you know, that were good for comparing with others. And he weaned those out and went into the small artisan producers. So, you know, if it's not good enough for us to eat, it's not good enough for you to eat. But can you imagine we are just exposed to the best? I would love it if someone would come to Enoteca and buy me a bottle of wine and give me a bottle of wine from Enoteca because I know it's going to be good. <laughs> yeah, But people think, you know, you're too difficult to buy for. But, you know, I like a, a bread and olive oil. Give me a great slice of sourdough, toasted, stale bread. Bread and olive oil, you know, I love it. So we are we are so fortunate. We're exposed to, as I said, amazing people, amazing products. We have an amazing clientele who've supported us for decades and decades. And I think that um, when word of mouth has been, is so powerful, you know, it's taken 70 years to get to this point. Um, and we, yeah, we are humbled by, by um, the... Re- and I have to say, I have to say, uh, I believe... Um, that m- our competitors have a lot of respect for us, an incredible amount of respect for us, because I think ethically we do things that very few other people do, and we don't annoy competitors, but we have always been prepared to risk. And because we've been prepared to risk when it was extra virgin olive oil, there was four times the price of olive oil. When the ferron rice that we brought in was four times the price of industrial rice at the time. When we brought those in, we actually didn't underestimate the consumer, but we believed in a product and we set a benchmark, we set a bar. And you travel and you go overseas. And you think, wow, this is great. I mean, this is bizarre. We closed the restaurant downstairs, which for us we did for 10 years, and it was the had to be the ambassadorship for Italian regional food and wine. 
um, in September, we had fa- celebrated Father's Day. Sean downstairs received about five or six phone calls that week before, people wanting to book lunch for Father's Day when the restaurant's been closed for 10 years. But we remember the food's just so amazing. You know, we used a half a million dollars of extra virgin olive oil in the cooking in the pan for 10 years. The restaurant did not make us money, but what it did in exposure to so many people. So your food tastes different because you're using good foundation, you're using great product. You know, the Colosseum's built on great foundation. That's why it's lasted as long as it's lasted. You can't put crap in a pan and then try and transform it. So hopefully, you know, start with good foundations and build, you know. Rosemary and John's son, Daniel, is now the third generation of the family working in the business. Rosemary shares some of his early successes and how Daniel's presence reflects the generations of customers who engage with the store. When we were in Amos Street um, and we first sort of officially opened as a retail store, must have been early 80s, um, our son Daniel was there on holidays and um, the first client, retail client who came in who we've known ever since um, he came in and Daniel said oh well can I help you and he said yes I'd like a suggestion on a red wine please so Daniel just um, said okay and he went to the shelf and he got the Zaccagnini wine I don't know if you know it's got the little um, twig on the label it's from Abruzzo Montepulciano d'Abruzzo and he goes up to the gentleman who's also named Daniel this I believe is really good. I haven't had it, but mum and dad drink it all the time. So Daniel, big Daniel, bought a dozen, one or two dozen. I think it was two dozen actually. We had a limited license at that point. And um, he's been coming back ever since. So it's just um, yeah, a lot of our clients we just um, see often, they come back, they bring their children back. And as John was saying before, so I have their grandchildren. There's a family that comes every Christmas where the parents would come, then the children, and now they come with their, their daughters and their granddaughters who are, you know, young, they're teenagers. And it's fantastic. Like, you're sort of catching up with friends um, whenever they come in. It's really good. Yeah, Daniel's been working. Well, he worked when he was at school as well. Um, but probably about 15 years, I'd say, full-time. And he has worked in every part of the business, whether it was when we had the restaurant, <clears throat> um, at the warehouse, helping to unload containers. Um, he does all the... Um, everything in retail, all the behind the scenes, um, working on prices and systems and just making sure everything works. He's um, he's really good. <laughs> he's more behind the scenes. That's why he likes it. It's time to talk about the king of cheeses, Parmigiano Reggiano. John has cut over a quarter of a million kilograms of Parmigiano over 50 plus years, always by hand using a small knife and a sculptor's technique. The magic Every single one is different. Parmigiano is, for me, like a, um, it's a big baby. Because when we cure the Parmigiano, and when you're curing it for the, an extra two, three, four years, Parmigiano is made with, a wheel's about three quarters of a tonne of milk. 
at origin. So when you've got such a wheel, you have, and you're aging it, because of the way that's made, there are all these veins inside. And so I use a 10 centimetre armoured knife. You only use barely, um, it's probably my thumbnail and a half of a blade of the point. And I, I have to, I have to score it just superficially in half. And it's a large wheel. And then I've got to gently pierce the crust, which is a natural form crust by washing in salt baths. Parmigiano has been made the same way for over 750 years. And it's, you're not allowed to use sprayed pastures. And it's in Reggio Emilia only. You can make grana other regions. And then I flip the wheel over and I've got to score it again. And I use the sensitivity of the tips of my fingers. And the older the cheese, the more the vein can just, you know, it can do it like a surf wave. It can go off to one tangent. And the art of Parmigiano cutting is you only give one crust per person. If you're cutting it with a wire or you're cutting it with a knife, you, well, you should be cutting it with a knife because grana means grain and reggiano. You only give one crust. And that I can do about a 1.8 kilo piece with one crust only. If it's a larger piece, then you're getting a lot more pulp proportionally. But it's the art of being able to dissect it. And dissect it so you've got these crumbly pieces. They look like crumbly sculpted rocks. Or just, you no, know, like a bit of marble. You, you, you put a chisel in and it's got to come apart. But you've got to break it evenly. And because we cook with olive oil, you can use the crust. Scrape the bottom of the crust. It's got olive oil on it. If you're making a minestrone, let it cook into the minestrone. You can put it under the grill if you like to. Scrape it under the grill and then just scrape that off. The parmigiano, it's 100% edible and it's got no lactose when it's aged. So here I am and every time, and I've cut over a quarter of a million kilograms in my life, you know, over 50 plus years. Um, used to be a wheel of reggiano a day that I'd be cutting. And so you're cutting and you cut the half, you've got two half moons and you're then you've got two quarter moons and then you've got an eighth and you've got a sixteenth and then you've got to divide proportionally. And each time you cut every wheel, there's no, there's no standard because the size of the wheel, because of the vein that you've created, because of the types of the size of the piece you've got to extract, you have to work it and you've got to look at it like a sculptor does. A, like, it's like Leonardo da Vinci creating a new David every time I cut a wheel of Parmigiano. <laughs> Yeah, but um, uh, and the, the trick is is not to have lots of crumbs. So I managed to cut a wheel on Saturday, and I cut it, and it was um, 98% probably accuracy in that cut. And that's pretty good going. I reckon it was pretty good. I said it was 95. I knew it was going to be 95 because I sensed it. I felt it, you know, um, and I actually started scoring it. But they said, no, 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 I've got to do it the other way around. And, and, and it was just an amazing experience in just watching people watching you because you're focusing here and they are seeing something they probably won't ever see again. They'll see someone cutting. But when you're talking to people about the life of the Parmigiano, and one of my uncles used to cut the hay that used to feed the cattle, and then the, 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 uh, they, um, the, the man who had the herd used to give the milk to the cheesemaker. But the cheesemaker couldn't sell the cheese until it was about 12 to 18 months old. But my uncle's cutting hay every day. And so how does he get paid? So then they did the Parmigiano bank where 10,000 wheels are stored in a Parmigiano bank so that the cheesemaker gets a percentage or sells his wheel at a cheaper price or gets a percentage of what he's deposited there. And as it ages, then they will pay him. And then the, the, the milkman, sort of the man who's got the herd, can get his pay. And then my uncle can get his pay um, sitting on a tractor. Because in Reggio Emilia, the grass grows so fast because the water table level is high. And all those microbe nutrients and the bacteria that are in that milk, in that soil, in the grass or is just in incredible for the cows and that's why the parmigiana is unique 
we're not simply celebrating longevity when it comes to Enoteca Seleno. We're celebrating an approach, an ethic, the prizing of culture, heritage and provenance. We work with traditional small producers, small farmers, small growers who have a real passion and for making what they make and producing what they produce that it be good, that it be authentic, that it's not, um, you know, f- filled with chemicals and rubbish. Um, and if you, like most of our, our, I don't think any of our products are sold in supermarkets, bec- or unless they're the small, like the IGAs or the Food Works, the little um, independent ones, but the big supermarkets, we won't deal with them and we can't because our producers can't produce enough for you know for us to guarantee supply and I think it's important for the heritage of um, not only Italian but for any other nationality to have stores that um, like ours that bring in um, their own regional you know culinary products because the, the culture has a lot to do with the food of, of the nation um, I think that's why it's simple. And that way we're not all eating the same rubbish, you know. People today want to know provenance. They want to know the story behind the Benza family, the Tajaske olives, your calf muscles going up, you're harvesting the olives on the net, the late harvesting of the olives. What makes these, the olives DNA registered? They want to know that. They want to know about the wines, the grapes. They want to know about that volcanic soil. They want to know why those grapes lasted for four, five hundred years when 90% of the other world's grapes were destroyed by phylloxera and how that helped that there. So that being the case, we we are highly educated, um, uh, I think, generation now all over the world. And because we are highly educated and we read a lot and we can impulsively see so much that comes on, um, I think that, that people, you, you have to be very careful on what you do because if you're prepared just to be a, a, you know, a fly-by-nighter, you're not going to survive on a fly-by-nighter. And to bring in a new product, it's an incredible amount of work. So I've been realising with probably around about five or six suppliers over these last couple of months, and I've got small little specialty items that I'm bringing in for the Enoteca. And I'm even looking towards Easter because Easter is going to be the 31st of March in 2024. So that's really soon after Christmas. So I'm looking at these. I'm going to, so what we do is we will bring in product for us only and we will offer it to you. Why? Why? Because I want to physically give it to you and I want you to try it. And I want you to give me feedback because if you're giving me the the authentic feedback, you're going to tell me, John, it's too expensive. John, it was fantastic. John, it was too cheap. John, I had the most amazing experience. If I sell this to a shopkeeper or a restaurant that goes, ah, too expensive. Nobody's going to buy that. Ah, no, I've got so many of those online. But because I've trusted you and I believed in you, I'm giving it to you first. So what do you do? You're going to go to your local deli and you go, have you got those Krusky? Those what? Those Krusky. Nah. What are they? Oh, they're these fried and dried chilies. Nah, nah, I don't want any that. Oh, well, I'm going to have to go to Enoteca. Then somebody else goes. Then somebody else goes. Then the little operator might go, maybe I should phone up Enoteca and say, what are these dried and fried chilies? And so then all of a sudden, you have become my sales rep because you believed in me. And so if I have to say to them, look, because of the way that they're made, they're going to cost you $10 a packet. But it's that's what it is. It's the, I cannot underestimate your value. 
And so I, that's what we've created. That's what we've, we've done. That's what we do. And so it's more than just being a merchant. Three score years and ten is a remarkable heritage. But Enoteca Soleno stays fresh because there's passion threaded through every aspect of the business. It's a community of artisan suppliers and customers who've passed their loyalty to the place down through the generations. Look, we just keep going. To do, I don't know if I'll be here in 70 years' time, but we just keep going while we can. Um, there's so much to bring, so much to introduce people to. And every time um, we go to Italy, there's even if there's just one new product, um, it's exciting to bring that back to show people, yeah. This year going, oh yeah, it's 70 years and you just keep working and keep doing and everything like that. But talking with somebody last week, they said 70 years is a really long time to be doing this. And I thought, you know, you're right. It is a long time, but um, I don't know, we just enjoyed it. I mean, there's ups and downs and that, but overall it's just been really good. Um and you grow with the business and the business grows with us. Um, and as I say, you just have a lot of friends, a lot of people that come in. Um, and it is a long time, but at the same time, it feels like a blink. Do you know what I mean? It's just gone really quickly. Yeah. Hopefully it'll keep going for a while. <laughs> I love what I do. I have a lot of energy. My wife loves what she does. And there's a lot of work overseas, a lot of work when you're dealing with staff and you've got a whole crew of staff. Um, over the next 70 years is a long, long way. I mean, what happened in the last 70 years with, um, let's say, with what was available then has been incredible leaps. Um, are, people, are people going to be growing more? Are people going to be searching for more products out of out of the, the cities? I mean, I, I believe the people who are out of the cities um, will be, uh, I think, very important because I think that their survival today is being able to transform some of their raw products into something else. And if we can give people experiences over the next 70 years and provenance and treat them with respect and never underestimate someone, I think there's future for, for all that's in the, in, in the um, food, wine sector. There's plenty to love about Enoteca Soleno, but what do John and Rosemary Portelli love about what they do? So I love what I do. I mean, I, I, I have amazing relationships with suppliers, so overnight time I I go into my little studio, I pick up a phone and I talk to them. I'll send emails, but I talk, I hear their voices. Um, and that that in itself is something that is very satisfying. Lessons in life that you cannot buy. We can't buy 70 years of respect. We can't buy 70 years of operations. It is a family business. Um, I think is it's very challenging sometimes, but it's it's... It is exciting. Um, and to see, um, I guess, Daniel working, um, just putting all the, all the the good ethics, um, I guess that he was brought up to have, you know, the good worth, work ethics and moral ethics. I think that's really good too, apart from all the wonderful products, which are just great. <laughs> We've always been able to 
show people that you can provide a great product, you can have great relationships. So we we set, um, as I said, a benchmark level. We need real people to survive. We need real people to live. We want delicatessens to be able to open their doors and know that they can feed the families who are there employing, that they're not going to be killed by some very, very large conglomerate companies who ask you to go and pick your product, ask you to put it into a trolley, ask you to cash out at a register. You need to be able to have physical contact. We need small people to live and survive because they are the ones who are giving us the, the provenance, the experiences, the conversations, the reason for us to get out of our house, the recipes, the, the meeting places, the hubs, the community centres. We need all of this that we always talk so much about. With the farmers markets who are these local small producers and even if you don't often need something in the farmers market, if I've gone to see friends and they're in the country, I'll buy things just because of the fact that that person was there. I might not have needed whatever I bought, but I just love the fact that the way that they were talking. And if we lose identity, if we lose regionalism, we have failed. If we can help as what we do to sustain these individual small people and producers, um, we've succeeded. The soul of Enoteca Seleno is consistent. A celebration of artisan food and drink a tender and enthusiastic honouring of the farmers and makers, and a passionate belief in legacy, family and tradition. This is Enoteca Seleno. Everything is here for a reason and everything has a story. Happy 70th birthday. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.